Jim. It's Eddie. You were right about sweet talking the seventh. He breezed in, paid seventy-two fifty. But I didn't get your bet down. Welcome to Two Hundred a Day, the podcast where we talk about the seventies television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And this time we are going back to season two for a late season episode, Foul on the First Play. But before we get into our episode, uh, I see that we have the light blinking on our answering machine. So uh, let's go ahead and see what's come in since the last time last time we checked. From Patreon... In reference to our episode 80, a, cl- a Good Clean Bus with Sequel Rights, co-starring Hector Elizondo, uh, Charles calls out that he was also in a season one episode called Say Goodbye to Jennifer, with a lot to recommend it. This is one that we have not yet done, and I don't remember if we mentioned that Hector Elizondo was in multiple episodes, because it's possible that we did and it got cut, or, right. I, or I might just have missed it when doing my usual kind of look-see. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, say goodbye to Jennifer. Um, Jim and Hector had great chemistry in that episode as well. It's an out-of-town Rockford story that also has Pamela Hensley from Buck Rogers and uh, the 80s detective show Matt Huston. Yeah. Uh, it also has um, Ken Swafford in it, which perked up my ears because Ken Swafford is one of my favorite Rockford re- reappearing character actors. Uh, we've done a couple of episodes with him, including Queen of Peru. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that means that this episode has a lot to recommend it when we do get to it. Yeah, yeah. Also from Patreon, uh, Bill mentions that something that the two Hector Elizondo episodes share is also that there are visible low boom mics in a couple scenes. (laughs) I remember noticing the one in the episode we did and deciding not to mention it because usually production mistake stuff i feel like just isn't that interesting to talk about yeah. <laughs> but i do remember noticing it because there is actually a fairly low incidence i think of those kinds of things and uh yeah also from patreon uh and someone i know in real life <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show friend of the show Sam says the big hitman in this episode, uh, and this episode is the same episode we were just talking about, right? The goon from Calumet City. Right. Yes. Uh, Sam says the big hitman in this episode has shown up enough that I finally looked him up. And he, Dick Durock, a wonderful name, which is Sam's. Uh, comment on it but i have to agree (laughs) that is an amazing name uh is apparently best known for portraying swamp thing in the 1982 and 1989 films as well as the 90s tv show truly the Derek mirrors of his day this is a very sam thing um but i do remember both those swamp thing films and the tv show so (laughs) uh i mean if he played swamp thing it's obviously i I didn't recognize him behind the the makeup there (laughs) it's more more the size Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's great. That is wonderful trivia. On Twitter, at Carter Hall underscore, goes back to our episode 74, The Great Blue Lake Land and Development Company, with a comment that uh, I believe in that episode we mentioned how that plot was modeled on a Maverick episode. Yeah. Which we haven't seen because we apparently at this point stubbornly refuse to watch Maverick. (laughs) I well, I've seen some Maverick. You've so seen some that, Maverick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For my part, it's kind of like I kind of like seeing it in Rockford yeah. and learning <laughs> that it was in Maverick. And at some point, when I watch Maverick, then I'll be like, "Oh, oh that's yeah. where that came from." Anyhow, the Maverick brothers apparently had a thousand dollar bills 
clipped to their coats. Uh, we had mentioned the scarcity of thousand mm. dollar bills in, uh, in, in that time frame. Um, and also, uh, the, the escape from jail in the Maverick episode comes from Brett Maverick reading a message on the cell ceiling about how to open the door, which is <laughs> a, uh, a classic little bit. That's great. Thanks for the throwback reference. When I watch Maverick, I will fully appreciate all of the interruptions. I promise you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a thing about the thousand dollar bill that shows up over and over again, at least in the episodes that I saw. Um, and I think it's something that their dad. Oh, uh, okay. But it's it's often like since they're gamblers, that's their stake money, or or it's something that they can rely upon when things go bad or or whatnot. It's a good idea. I would mm-hmm. pin a thousand dollar bill inside my coat had I a thousand dollar bill uh, and a coat to pin it in. <laughs> also on Twitter, Jordan Bockelman continues to investigate Jim's bookshelves. We'll share any additional discoveries as they come in, but you can follow Jordan at Jordan Bockelman, B-O-C-K-E-L-M-A-N on Twitter. Uh, the latest is a shot from um, Gear Jammers of oh, yes. Jim's bookshelves, which are which is pretty great. Speaking of Bockelman, not Brockelman, an mm-hmm. addendum that I wanted to bring in is that I recently rewatched the Columbo episode, Last Salute to the Commodore, which has Dennis Dugan as a new police sergeant joining Columbo. <laughs> and nice. I was like, how did we get through that entire episode? How did we get through all of the <laughs> Bockelman episodes without me remembering slash right. seeing that he was in that Columbo episode as essentially the same co- character, just mm-hmm. as a police, a fresh-faced young police sergeant, not a fresh-faced young PI. Uh, that is one of the weirdest Columbo episodes, uh, so it kind of is of a piece with the overall strangeness of that whole thing. It was supposed to be the series' end, and then they ended up continuing the series, and there's a story behind it, but anyway... Shouts to Dennis Dugan for all of the great things that he did in 70s television detective shows. <laughs> in the um, alternate universe uh, Columbo Rockford crossover episodes, mm-hmm. uh, it would be a delight to have him play the opposite character in <laughs> like, like play Richie Brockelman in the Columbo episode and the, the police officer in the Rockford and just do like a, a Shakespeare style comedy of errors. Mm-hmm. <sighs> we can dream. Yeah, but it would it would be bad. You shouldn't make my dreams a reality. <laughs> all right. Well, that looks like all the uh, messages on the machine for now. Uh, as always, you can leave comments and thoughts for us uh, at our Patreon, patreon.com slash 200 a day at our website um, in the comments on each episode at 200 a day dot fireside dot FM and on Twitter at 200 pod. All right. So this was a uh, this was your selection, right, Epi? Yeah, um, yeah. I chose this one. So we've been trying to. We, yeah, we're getting up there in podcast years. <laughs> um, was it like every podcast years seven years? Mm-hmm. Anyways, the point is, uh, we're coming to a spot where we're going to be able to close out some of these seasons. We're running out of Rockford. In the context of, we technically have fewer episodes to do than we have done. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're over the Rockford Hill. That's what yes. it is. It's all downhill from here. So um, we, we've we been kind of concentrating on season two to see if we can do that. And this is, I've been enjoying this because uh, season two is a good season. And it's uh, it, it's sort of like where the heart of Rockford 
kind of comes together. Comes together, yeah. So, like, before it, you can see them trying to find their way into the Rockford Files, and then after it, it, it feels like everything after it is either, uh, is like a commentary on that season. Yeah, it's either, it, it's either continuing out what they've solidified, or, or then it starts increasingly as time goes on, pushing the boundaries of like, okay, this is our world, right. now what's a weird new take on it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this one, it, it's interesting because, uh, well, I chose it specifically because Gabby was going to be in it, but I, I should make a note that uh, he doesn't have the nickname Gabby yet. <laughs> <laughs> I kept on calling him Gabby in my notes, and then halfway yeah. through the episode, I'm like, no one calls him Gabby in this episode. Uh, I believe he's called Gabby specifically to create the Gabby and Gandy yeah. thing with uh, Gandalf Finch and... Uh, in uh, Just Another Polish Wedding, which is where we first encountered this character, and now we're going back to his first appearance. And I'm trying to remember if if uh, Gandhi or Rockford gave him that moniker in that episode. I don't remember. I don't remember either. I, I have a vague memory of them being in the back of the limo and that coming out, but it also, whatever. Um, yeah. The point is, I wanted to see more Gabby, more Marcus, or as Rockford sometimes calls him, Mark. Mark. We wanted to see more Lou Gossett Jr. That's yeah, what yeah. that's what we're saying. Uh, yeah. So this is a uh, in the grand scheme of things. What is our 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 nomenclature for Rockford Files episodes? Our our our, our typology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a this is kind of a Jim gets hired. You know, just a straight up Jim gets hired for a job and then you know yeah. things go south. It's a little bit of a Jim's friend drags him into trouble. Right, but it's hard. But he's to not say really that. a friend, right? <laughs> Someone familiar to Jim drags him into trouble. A shadow from Jim's past reappears, which usually yeah. is a woman, but in this case is a parole <laughs> officer. Yes, it's his old parole officer. Uh, yeah, fun. It's a fun episode. I'm going to warn you that going into it. This episode was uh, directed by Lou Antonio. Um, we have done two of his other. Rockford episodes. This is the third that we're doing. The ones we've done are the the No Cut Contract and the Aaron Ironwood School of Success. He also directed the pilot, which means that we are not going to finish his cycle for quite a while if we oh. keep to keep to keep to my goal, right? Which is to do the pilot and the last episode as our final, right? You know, thing. So, spoiler alert: we're not going to do the pilot or the last episode <laughs> until the end of our podcast. Uh, I mean, in addition to being a director, he's also an actor. We know this because when you pull him up on IMDb, his headshot is as one of the half and half black and white painted aliens from the oh, yes. Star Trek original series episode. Uh, that is like racism. That's bad. Right. Uh, let that be your last battlefield. <laughs> Anyhow, this one during this episode, I was like, the staging of a lot of it is very humorous. It's very like it has a mm -hmm. lot of really fun echoing and stuff like that in terms of like shot composition and stuff. So yeah, props, props to Lou on that. This episode is a teleplay by Stephen Cannell from a story by Chaz Floyd Johnson and Dorothy J. Bailey. Now we talked about Chaz Floyd Johnson recently, of course, uh, Stephen Cannell, the, the gift of words, uh, the, the dialogue in this is pretty, pretty excellent throughout. I could not find a single thing out about Dorothy J. Bailey from the internet. However, oh, Ed Robertson comes to the rescue in 30 Years of the Rockford Files um, in, in the entry for this episode. Um, so Dorothy Bailey was apparently a longtime assistant to Roy Huggins, co-creator of the show. 
that would explain why she was involved with a Rockford Files episode, mm-hmm. <laughs> came up with the idea with Chaz Floyd Johnson. And when they wrote, they specifically had Lou Gossett in mind when writing oh, the story nice. because it was like they're kind of looking for an excuse to get Garner and Gossett together again because they'd been in a movie in the early 70s. Uh, Skin Game, which I've not seen, but now I want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, she was more of a producer and a post-production person. Yeah, that's what her IMDb is filled with. Yeah. Production and post-production. And this says that she occasionally wrote under the pseudonym Chris Wesley, which I also could not find anything else about on a uh, internet search. So I'm glad that that filled in a little bit of a hole because she is not yeah. involved anywhere else in credits for the Rockford Files. Um, but apparently, yeah, was a worked worked with Roy Huggins, had some kind of relationship with Chas Floyd Johnson. They, they wrote a fun story, and yeah. now we get to enjoy it. <laughs> but yeah, and I think we get right into it with a very brief preview montage. The the things that stuck out to me in this preview montage, of course, is that uh, Gabby's in it, but it, and like we've mentioned, this is his first appearance on The Rockford Files. We don't know that he's Gabby. We just know <laughs> that he's Louis Gattis Jr. Um, the chemistry between the two of them, though, in that montage is perfect. It sets the stage. Yeah, it's apparent from the montage that's like, oh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, uh, there's the great line, you just hired me to take a beating. And we're like, okay, so there we know precisely what Rockford's in for. Uh, and then the other thing that really stuck out is the old two cars up, or the one car up on two wheels trick. Yep. Uh, which I was like, yeah, I want to see this happen. Always exciting. Uh, yeah, we know there's cops. We know Jim's being used in some way. And we're going to get right into it. Hello, listeners. This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the financial support from patrons really means a lot to us. And we extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time, we say thank you to Chuck from whatyoureading.com, Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com, Shane Liebling, Check out his dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party, because you know you're playing role-playing games online. Jay Adon and his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, Dave Otterson, and Kip Holly. And finally, an extra special thank you to our detective patrons for their very generous support. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter. Brian Pereira, at Thermoware. Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where Epi and I casually chat about the media we're enjoying and all the other things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. So we start right off with a night shot of some kind of office building. And we have two guys reviewing basketball footage. (laughs) In the first shot, I was like, oh, who's that guy? I know that guy. Um, (laughs) The cigar smoking guy. Yeah. I thought that he was going to be much more important in this episode than turns out that he was. But that (laughs) is um, Al Ruscio, who played... 
Vic in the Dog and Pony show. So he played the, not the enforced, like the mob boss's assistant guy. Yeah. Who uh, Jim flim flammed around with being a record producer. And he had the, I don't know. He was like very much a memorable character in that. And I'm like, who's that guy? I thought he was going to be a villain from other Rockford Files, but no, he was, I'm just remembering him from Dog and Pony show. This scene, the setup of this scene is interesting because it's, they're in the dark, obviously, because uh, they're watching uh, from a film projector um, and he's smoking a cigar and it's just the two of them. And it just has a very, uh, maybe it's because I remember him from this other one, like, or just it's the rock profiles. I feel like these are <laughs> probably mafia. Mm-hmm. Like they're watching basketball footage and they're talking about how good the players are going to be. And there's just this, the, the threat in this scene, aside from, you know, how they're playing the characters comes from, there's talk about one of the players having a problem with his wife. And he's like, well, if I acquire the team, we're going to make sure that's not going to be a problem. Right. And none of that. Oh, the bit about acquiring the team is what's important to mm-hmm. what's happening here. Um, uh, I, I mean, like we had just mentioned that this is season two, not further. If this were further down the line, if this were season four or five, uh, I would say that this scene is a, a deliberate bait and switch with the audience. But I think instead it's just meant to convey this information. I think it's just an establishing kind of shot of like basketball is going to be involved. <laughs> yeah, because it's a little bit before or well, not too long before we find out that basketball is involved. But it still has this like, like, why are, why are we caring about this? What's going on? And yeah, basketball is going to be involved. That's that's what we learn here. Uh, our our classic Rockford Files score hits as we see our credits over a uh, very exciting <laughs> moment to get us into the action. As uh, Lou Gossett is getting kicked out of a car and two <laughs> very chunky goons are roughing him up. We're going to see these two goons a lot. Uh, one of them is... His main character trait is that he is asthmatic, and so he will get overexcited and start using an inhaler. The other one, we barely see his face. He's just a big goon. The character's name is Marcus Hayes, as we will learn soon. (laughs) They have Marcus down on the ground, wrenching his wrist and roughing him up to to get him to spill some kind of information. Um, Well, two things. They want him to stop whatever he's doing, asking questions about the franchise. And they also want to know who he's working for. And there is some excellent goon dialogue oh yeah gabby hayes marcus we're gonna end up calling him gabby because we imprinted so hard on (laughs) yeah um on just another polish wedding but uh yeah just for for listeners who weren't around when we did that one that's because he has the gift of gab Mm -hmm. that is why he is called gabby anyhow he says something about like i I can't tell you There there are other people involved who would violate everything i stand for (laughs) <laughs> only thing is you ain't standing mr Reeves. you are sitting and in two hours you're going to be in refrigeration on a six-foot porcelain tray you hear me <laughs> um so i got a little confused with some names here mm-hmm so his his story is that he's the parole agent for one of the players, right? Yeah. There's someone's leaning on on this player to shave points from games, and so he's uh, trying to find out who that is and and stop them from this nefarious um, 
effort. He does have a badge for his office. It is in his shoe, which is a nice touch. Yes. And so once they uh, get grab his badge, um, they seem satisfied with the story and leave him leave him in the alley with a thematic saxophone wail as Hayes puts his shoe back on and the uh, their, their car pulls away. That I too noted the saxophone. Um, the music here is great. It's this, I said, lonesome sack that turns into quite the swing while the credits roll. <laughs> One of the things about this scene that's great is this: these goons interrogating Marcus are asking questions that we'll be asking through the rest of this episode. <laughs> They're trying to get an- straight answers out of him, and we'll never, not never, but it'll be very difficult to get these straight answers out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's great, and I, I like that. And also, this bit, I, like I made this in, note here, that I'm like, oh, his asthma, I bet that'll be important later. And it's not. It's 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 like his character kind trait. Kind of is a little bit. We'll get to it in the... okay. Maybe I missed it, but... It's less that it's important later as a plot device and um, more like it's beat one of a three-beat gag. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. As we will see. Um, We uh, cut to Hayes knocking on Jim's door. A great opening uh, interchange. Hi, Jimbo. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) Um, The scene concerns uh, Marcus talking his way into Jim's trailer. They should move past that one time with the thing that happened because it got got along pretty good before that. So a couple things here. First of all, Jim is interrupted mid-snack. Yeah. He has his glass of milk and he's going for the cookie jar when he the knock comes. So we do get to see him enjoy his uh, his Oreo as the scene unfolds once uh, once Marcus is in his trailer. And there's a nice. Uh, I don't think this is like really overt, but we know that's where he keeps his gun. Right. So this is there is a moment, yeah, <laughs> where he goes for the cookie jar and then pulls out a cookie and it's like, okay, yeah, okay, all right. All right. That could have gotten a different way. Um, we also learned that what happened four years ago was that Hayes was Jim's parole officer and violated his parole, which I guess is a term of art for flagged him for violating right. the terms of his parole, and he ended up getting an attorney to clear it up in the courts because it was a erroneous use of, of the parole, the parole officer's power. So he ended up getting that the record corrected, but clearly this left a bad taste in Jim's mouth and he doesn't want anything to do with, with Marcus. However, he says he has cash to put in Jim's pocket and offers to buy him breakfast for five minutes of his time. There's a specific exchange of uh, Jim asks to see his money and he does not show him money, but says, I got the money. And in my notes, I'm like, I bet he doesn't have the money. Yeah. However, I was wrong. Mm, yeah. He, um, he's also very well dressed. I like, I made a comment about yeah. that. This is, I mean, we know this about Gabby, but, uh, if you're watching this for the first time, uh, like you would have been, like, this is our introduction to him. Um, how he's dressed is very important. He is 98% show. And that's, <laughs> that's the thing that they are getting across here. I think, yeah, it's interesting. This whole first part of the episode is like, we know who this character is already. So I'm kind of like waiting for the turn or, you know, waiting to find out the reveal of what he's really up to and whatnot, what his scam is. 
I think if you're watching this for the first time, there's an open question because I think Lou Gossett does a really good job of playing sincere and then playing, okay, you got me on that first one, but here's the real story when there's a third story behind (laughs) the second story. And we know that because we've seen this character before. So it's fun to see that play out as a, as a piece of craft for me. Right. While I think it would be equally fun to watch it play out just as a revelation of how this character works if you were not familiar with this character. Uh, there's a great line about, uh, I can't remember how it's set up. Why didn't we work well together or something like that? And Jim was like, well, we hated each other. That always gets in the way. Yeah, I think that's once they're in the diner. So they go to the like the diner across the street, the restaurant across the street. And we yeah, we get a little more of their banter. So he gives us a little more of the same story that he told the goons, which is mm-hmm. that this player who was in San Quentin, Marcus was his parole officer and got him hooked up with the Lakers. And now he's playing for the Lakers on this franchise expansion team in Santa Monica. And so this is the franchise that is the subject of the drama to come, the Santa Mm -hmm. Monica team. So he was brought in on this uh, point shaving thing by the player's wife. And that's who's um, hired him. Mm -hmm. I guess, or not hired him because he's, so he's still saying he's the parole officer, right? So it's not that he's been hired, but it's that he's investigating this. So Jim says, well, why don't you just violate his parole and send him back to jail? Yeah. I've changed. I've learned something, Jim. I found that helping people help themselves can be one of the most emotionally rewarding games in town. (laughs) What is it? What's funny? Helping someone help themselves to what, Mark? What's the angle, huh? <laughs> um, but the wife wants to figure out what's going on and has money. And so Hayes wants to hire Jim and the wife is paying for it. That's where the mm-hmm. money's coming from. We don't find out that detail until after Marcus gets so offended that Jim is laughing at him about this supposed new leaf that uh, he throws down some cash for the meal and storms out. And yes. Jim follows him, but not before taking the last piece of bacon that was on his plate. Yes. <laughs> because he's not going to not get the, the that food that someone else paid for. Uh, I, I have in my notes that this is such a good play on, on Marcus's part. The wounded pride? Yeah, because immediately following that, Jim is... You could tell that Jim feels bad about being so cruel to him, mm-hmm. uh, even though he deserves it. We don't really know that yet and but it's great because it you know this is just how jim reacts like he says no and then something comes up that that makes it so that he can't and uh i really do like that it feels very deliberate deliberate on uh marcus's part once marcus has hooked him with this act i would say Mm -hmm. um he gets down to business. They're in the parking lot now. Uh, he has the money. He's, you know, going to hire Jim for his regular rate uh, to find out who's putting the pressure on. But this is when he reveals that he got beat up for asking about this. Yeah. And Jim's like, oh, well, when it gets dangerous, I get lost. <laughs> yeah. But all Hayes wants him to do is to put an electronic tracker on the car because he has the car. He, he has the license plate. He can track down the car, put the electronic tracker on it. And then, you know, once they know where the car goes, they can find out who these guys are working for. Move on down the down the line. Yeah. So there's there's a good bit going with the money here in this scene um, that I don't know who is responsible for it, but 
good on them uh, is probably Jim Garner. But Rockford has got his eyes on the money in uh, uh, Marcus's hands when Marcus, like when he's talking to him. Mm hmm. He's focused on that money, and then when he when he hands the money to him, Jim does a quick count of it. Like it's, <laughs> I didn't notice that the whole bit is very good. Like this is you know the acting is reacting thing. Yeah, right? yeah Like yeah. the whole time Marcus is talking, Jim is telling you what's important here, and it's that you that that you might not be able to trust that this money is is real. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but good good call. Uh, we go to a parking garage where Jim's walking around and we have a quick intercut montage where he's finding the, uh, the car with, with the right license plate while Marcus is on the phone making a phone call, sneakily keeping an eye on Jim and then using a very like show enough voice right. on the yeah, phone to play at being like a, like a, a custodian or a janitor mm-hmm. and calling someone saying like, I've just seen someone looking around your car and you look suspicious and I thought you should know. Um, so our two goons come out of nowhere with guns to surprise Jim as he's straightening up from planting the, the tracker. Um, and then we see Marcus in another car watching this all go down. So now we're like, okay, clearly this was his, his game yeah, the his, whole time. His, his setup. Yeah. Jim's line is that he's, uh, from smog control with the city <laughs> and that he's like inspecting, um, uh, mufflers or something like that. And they, of course, don't believe him, um, including the great line, get in the car, mister, or you're going to be wearing your ears on your belt. <laughs> yes, I got that written in my notes, too. Uh, one, one of the things, I mean, this continues, but one of the things I think I, I really enjoyed here was Jim's commitment yes. to this particular lie. It's, it's a look at his uh, tradecraft, actually. Like, right. we often see him do these little bits where it's like, okay, he's fast talking, right? Like, here's a story, spin it out just long enough to get himself out of trouble. But then over this and the next scene, we see that this is actually a, a cover that he has constructed just in case this kind of thing comes up. Yes. Maybe he should have put a little more thought into it. But at the same time, we get the feeling that no amount of persuasion is going to affect these goons. Right. And yes, and it sits in nice juxtaposition to what you said earlier about uh, Marcus, who will change up his story uh, to a new a new lie mm-hmm. uh, when the first one doesn't seem like it's catching. And Jim, whether he's too invested in the current one or just, that's just the route that he found most successful is not doing that. Yeah, you get the sense that he thinks that changing the story isn't going to help. Right. What happens over the next scene is we get, I I mentioned uh, earlier about how there's a lot of mirrored stuff. This is the exact same shot as earlier when Marcus was getting thrown out of the car, but now it's Jim getting thrown out of the car. Yes. With the same blocking and lines as the one goon grabs his wrist and wrenches it and the asthmatic goon yells at him to tell him what they what he knows and who he's working for um i think the score is different uh, Mm -hmm. because jim and and marcus have different themes uh in in the score for the episode but uh it's so perfectly mimicked that it's humorous like it's a it actually lightens it up a little bit when this could be a very serious scene it's kind of like all right now we're seeing this run back again just with jim instead of marcus what are you working for well, I told you. I don't believe in smog. We don't have any smog in L.A. We have some brown air, but no smog. And since there's no smog, there can't be any survey to measure it. Now, can there be? Of course there's smog. What's the matter with you? 
Uh, so he keeps keeps up his line about working for the smog inspection unit or whatever. You got my wallet? It says who I am. You're a little short on ID, Metcalf. And you know what? The ink ain't even dry yet. Sure it is. No, it ain't. We have a, a close-up of his business card, which is, yes. you know, Jim Taggart or whatever his, his alias was. But then the goon rubs his thumb over it and the ink smears. Yes. Uh, Jim Metcalf, that's his uh, alias. Yeah, yeah. That, that line, like... Like I said, he's he's got this commitment to this line, and that line is like the the final straw. Like, let me tell you, the thing you're seeing is not actually happening. Before he can get roughed up anymore, a car pulls up with the like uh, searchlight. Oh yeah, and they're like, "Oh no, it's the cops!" And so they speed off, and uh, it of course is not the cops. It is Marcus who is following them and just has a car with the little searchlight thing. Yeah, because of course he does. Because of course he does. And so Marcus picks up Jim. Or no, Marcus does not pick up Jim. No, he just drives right past. And so Marcus, yeah, just drives right past him following the other car. And Jim Jim sees him, is clearly angry. And then we have a great harmonica sting yes. mimicking the saxophone. Uh, which is wonderful. And then the scene ends. Uh, we just follow Marcus as he follows the other car stops at a house and he's like all right this is this is the information he was he was looking for he says gotcha <laughs> uh so now of course jim is on on the march of he is affronted and angry and he is going to track down marcus hayes so he goes to the parole office of course but turns out uh there hasn't been a parole officer named mark hayes there for the past at least the past three years another guy just one of the great bit yes. characters that we've seen in a minute. I feel like the first couple up, the first couple seasons, we really talked a lot about these like little bit incidental characters who seemed yeah. like they were just fully realized real people. Um, and it's not like that changed necessarily, but I think maybe we just got a little desensitized to them because they're kind of yeah. consistently good for whatever reason this this guy really jumped out at me as just like one of those like yeah no he's good so i guess he like runs the department or something i don't know if we ever learn his name but he just comes in he's like oh rockford isn't it fred no dave wait a minute i'll get it steve jim right jim rockford so like you know this guy he has all this knowledge but not he's a little shaky on the details uh he says that they he he fired hayes Mm-hmm. How come? Ah, uh, rather not say. What, you, do you know where I could find him? In the Alpes. <laughs> Only he's changed his name from uh, Hayes to O'Brien. Guess what? He's in a whole new line of work. He's a sleaze. A what? Sleaze. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I know what that is. Private detective. Oh, a sleaze. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, man. We could just then follow this guy on to like the rest of his day and like the 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 barely functioning bureaucracy that he apparently is in charge of and all of yeah. the <laughs> and all of the trials and travails of the people that work under him. Like it just seems like there's a whole show there, which is always super fun to see. From the moment when he he says, you know, obviously he recognizes Rockford in the beginning, and then he's like, We always hate to see recidivism or whatever oh, he yeah, says. Yeah. Like, he's like <laughs> Sorry, you're back here. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's not why. Like, it's nothing personal. It's just like a a former felon that I recognize. Oh, another one. Like, that's a shame you're back. 
I think that's it's just it is that you need this character to you, to be written from his point of view. This is a thing that he would be thinking about what's happening here, mm-hmm. and not yeah. like what what do we need right now for the story? What is you know what do we need right now for Rockford? It's of course this is what this guy would be would yeah. be thinking is that Rockford was there to to because he violated his parole somehow or something. It's that little detail that that little nuance that I think gets to why the writing is so good and like why we keep saying that the writing is so good yes it's that little distinction between between kind of that top down like something needs to be in the story here to move us from a to b so here's the thing in the story that will move us to a to b and then viewing that as exactly as you say from the perspective of writing the character from from their perspective, not mm-hmm. from the perspective of what the story needs, even though it's in service to what the story needs. It's in service to getting Jim to finding Marcus. But the manner in which it is delivered adds to the sense of the living, breathing world. It adds humor. It reveals a little bit about the character of Jim because, you know, he's like, no, 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 no. that's not why I'm here. <laughs> like, yes. like, yeah, it's I guess sometimes when we're talking about like narrative stuff, I feel like it's hard it's hard to put into words why something that feels mechanical in a story isn't as 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 convincing or isn't as engaging right as yeah. something that is doing the exact same thing kind of logistically but feels like it's more natural yeah i i mean that's part of the craft is just taking what you need from it and making it feel like it arose nat- naturally rather than uh just artificially you know rather than from a point of like we need this in the story inject right emerging from the of course naturally this is what would happen when jim comes into this office yeah and of course they're both artificial they're both being written by someone to serve a goal (laughs) and so yeah it's just that little bit of like this could be generic and mechanical but it is in fact engaging and memorable because of the way it's treated. Anyway, there is a, a little rabbit hole to go down on a very <laughs> short scene that really is just getting us to to get to Jim learning that Marcus is operating under the name Marcus O'Brien as a PI mm. <laughs> because he is no longer a parole officer. And if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I can recommend the podcast 200 a day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Marcus O'Brien, of course, is a public facing private investigator with a big nice office receptionist yeah everything's decorated well like there's clearly like money here right like that's the Mm -hmm. whole point of everything here just to be like look at the success that he is having as a pi we start off with the great bit uh to show us that jim has his number from the jump right the receptionist says he's on the phone uh jim goes in anyway he's on the phone with his back to jim talking about like oh yeah they'll I can get six agents on that, blah, 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 blah. Jim hits, uh, I guess, like a speaker button on his phone, and it's just a dial tone. Oh, it looks like you're talking to a deadline. <laughs> and then Marcus says that it's a thing he does to make new clients feel important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which he probably does. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't seem too much like a lie, but also that's not why he's doing it in this moment. They have good banter about Jim being reasonable about the whole thing. Sure, he got set up, but he understands, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we know as audience that we're just building up to Jim doing something. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
And he does when he grabs Mark's tie and pulls him to him. Marcus takes a swing, which Jim blocks, and then just punches him across the face, sending him sprawling over the table. Marcus holds up his hands. He's like, you know, you got paid for that, but I'll offer you more for your trouble. You know, 50. And Jim picks up his fist. He's like, 75. Um, (laughs) And he picks him up gently and then punches him across the face again. So Jim's getting all of his anger out on... uh, taking some swings here at uh, at poor Marcus Hayes. I'll tell you what, I'll come clean. But, hey, look, now we should cut out this punching and bleeding. I mean, how am I going to talk to you through a swollen mouth, huh? Okay, Mark, but not here. We're leaving. And he goes to uh, Marcus's desk, opens a drawer, pulls out a gun that's in the drawer. <laughs> He's like, and we're going to go out the hidden side door. Marcus says, what hidden side door? You have one. Want to bet $75 on it? <laughs> um, and of course, there is a hidden side door. So just Jim with the upper hand, with his righteous anger, knowing that no matter yeah. what Marcus says, there's going to be another thing behind it. So, yeah, this all culminates with going outside to wait for his limo. Mm-hmm. Which turns out there is, in fact, a limo. (laughs) I think this is another one of those, because we saw uh, just another Polish wedding where the limo is kind of an important detail. Um, I I don't know if the scene, because there's a little bit of, um, tension is not the right word, but there's a little bit of suspense in whether that's, because Marcus is like, well, why why are we waiting for my ride? Yeah, because it's cold, because Jim pulls him out without his coat, which I think is just, you know, to be a jerk. And it's cold out. Yeah. So it's like, why don't we go to, you know, why are we waiting for my ride? And he's like, well, I'm parked two blocks away. And there's a moment where you're like, oh, this is another play to sh- to call his bluff about having a limo. Right. But then a limo does actually pull up. <laughs> yes. Before we get into the meat of the scene, we see that the goons are across the street in their car. Right. And they see Jim and Marcus get into this limo. And they're like, oh, we knew they were working together. And then they're going to follow them as they drive. In the limo, we get more of the story um because jim doesn't want to be in it but he wants to know what he was in before he gets out of it all right what marcus says here is that there's the santa monica franchise there's three bidders on it and so there's a bidding war there's a lot of money involved and there's a commissioner who's going to decide which of the bidders is going to get the franchise he says that he's working for one of the bidders whose name is eastman and Eastman thinks that one of the other ones are pressuring the commissioner to award it to someone, you know, someone who is not Eastman. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a PI, he has been hired by Eastman to find out who's doing that. He got picked up by the two goons. So then he fed Jim to the goons to find out which of the other guys the goons are working for. And they work for Tom Carell, who is uh, Al Ruscio, the the, the guy who um, I recognize at the top of the episode. Um, and he's mobbed up, or at least he's mob adjacent. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, yes, he basically hired Jim to take a beating. And so Jim wants half of the score to, to, to square the deal. I got hired to take a beating. I'm still mad about it. But to make things even, I'll take half. Yes. <laughs> Which Marcus says $5,000. And I'm like, it's probably more than $5,000. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's the number that Marcus says. This is when the driver of the limo tells them that they're being tailed and they see that the two goons are tailing them. And so Jim's like, all right, I can lose those guys for you for (laughs) (laughs) $5,000. Marcus wants to know what the plan is. Jim says, you don't need to know the plan. We're just going to go back to my car and then have you go drive around in the park and Jim will handle it from there. 
Well, let's take a little break. Uh, we want to make sure that you know where you can follow all of our other projects and interests online. Epi, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can Google Epidia. I am the only one out there that I know of. Uh, you can go to digathousandholes.com. That's the number a thousand. Or you can go to worlds, plural, without master, singular.com and uh, find my work there. How about you, Nathan? My internet home for all things NDP is at ndpdesign.com. You can find all of the links and information for all of my various games, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game, my zines, and uh, podcast projects, of which perhaps there may be more than one. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at ndpaoletta. As always, if you want more information about the podcast, go to 200aday.fireside.fm. And now back to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. Before we get into the fun in the park, I'm like, okay, so this is the story behind the first story. Yes. Check. Now, there's a strong possibility that this is also a lie, right? Right. Or at the very least, that the amount of money that he's offering Jim is substantially lower than what he is going to be making off of this job, whatever it is. Right, yeah. And so we just have to wait and see how that plays out. Where where were you with that tracking the Marcus story situation? Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, I've seen this episode before, but it's been a long time. Yeah, I didn't remember the actual plot of this episode at all. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, I think partly because uh, it's not until another Polish wedding that he really sticks in my head. Sure, yeah. At this point, I think I'm like, I don't trust anything he's saying. Like, we're not getting any any <laughs> real information. But also, like, we're getting information as viewers that, you know, Jim isn't getting... Like, we saw, um, at the very beginning, we saw the guys watching yeah. the... the the film so that the basketball bit pans out like that's the only bit that that is the premise yes <laughs> yeah so that's sort of where like i know as long as they're on the run there's no straight answer jim's gonna get because there's always going to have this pressure that will uh allow him to step out of the, uh, allow marcus to step out of the um cause Jim to focus on something other than markets, right? Like the, there's, it's always going to be a distraction there. And of course the imperative here is to get rid of these goons. So now yeah. we have a pretty, pretty, pretty fun scene. We follow the limo. The limo lets Marcus out in this park and then he just yes. takes off on foot. And then our goons pull up behind the limo, jump out of their car and start chasing Marcus again on foot. I noticed that this is a very chill score for a foot chase. Like, it's just kind of like standard yeah. interlude music score as we're watching these two guys with their guns out chase Marcus Hayes through a public park. I don't know if we commented on this yet, but this, it's maybe important to know that Jim says he has a plan. Yes. And that Marcus should trust him. And then we see them split up before this happens. Yes. So uh, it's not like, is Marcus running away from Jim or, you know, anything like that? Like this, We is... know this is going somewhere. Yeah. And where this is going is there's a sudden swell in the music as the firebird comes shooting over yes. a hill. <laughs> Such a classic Dukes of Hazard jump. Oh, so good. And it's shot from below. So we really see, we really feel like it's getting a lot of air as it shoots over this hill. And Jim basically runs the guys down. They dive out of the way as the yes. firebird. Again, this is all on dirt. This is just in the middle of a park as a firebird 
goes right at them. They'll throw themselves out of their way. Marcus jumps in the car. They fishtail out of there, shooting up all these big clouds of dust. And our goons are shooting their guns after the car to no effect. That part I was a little surprised by. Like, because it's a park, right? Like, right. just And we see there's people. I mean, obviously, they're not shooting real bullets in the, in yeah. the staging. But, like, there are people there. Like, this is in a yeah. public park where they probably were like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to be shooting a TV show. Just stay over there or whatever. Like, there are people in the background. Yeah. <laughs> There's just, like, gunfire. Um, we do see that the asthmatic goon is having trouble running and has to yes. stop and use his inhaler. Lean on a fence. They get back to the goon's car. Jim reaches in, grabs the keys, throws them away, and then they take take off in the Firebird. Um, and then this is, like, the, I guess, the, the, the payoff for the inhaler. Right. Bit where the other goon runs to the car, sees that there's no keys in it, turns around, he's all he's yelling, he's frustrated, and in the background, <laughs> the asthmatic goon has just collapsed on his back. <laughs> yes. And as the other guy comes up to him, he's like, I'm out, or something. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's out of his inhaler spray, which sucks. Like, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's why I was saying this is kind of a, that setup yeah. is for a comedy bit. Like, plot-wise, they would have gotten away either way, but comedically, yeah. the fact that this guy can't make it on the foot chase because of his inhaler, which is probably planned for by Rockford also, right? Like, because right. they know what his deal is. So, it has a purpose. It's just not... Yeah as much of one as maybe it could have could have been in another episode the bit with the keys is fun uh i don't honestly remember if people left their keys in the car all the time in the 70s uh they did on tv yeah uh but it, you know it makes a certain amount of sense if you're jumping out of the car chasing someone on the yeah, foot, right yeah. like that's uh it's a little funny that rockford throws them rather than just pockets them <laughs> But, uh, again, that's like a TV thing, right? Like you would, it's a universal sign of, I got your keys. Ha ha. In the Firebird, Marcus says, that was smooth. And Jim says, I'll take a check. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Jim's not going to like hearing this, but Marcus Hayes doesn't actually have any money. (laughs) Apparently he's in chapter 11. Everything that he earns is going to the bank to pay off this bankruptcy proceeding. The limo is leased, and if Jim doesn't believe him, he can take it up with the bank president. And Jim calls his bluff. Jim's like, all right, let's go to the bank. And then we cut yeah. to, so I guess this is a, a good joke in the cut, where they cut to them leaving the bank and Hayes saying, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's how it is. So we get to something that that is real and for true, and it is that uh, Marcus Hayes is bankrupt and does not have any money to pay Jim. This is such a standard Jim thing where if he's, if he's got some trouble with someone... He doesn't believe Marcus, so he's just going to strong-arm Marcus into situations where it has to be proven true, right? Right, right. Like, we're going to the bank then. Like, yeah, I'm not letting it go until we know for certain. Jim understands Marcus had a problem, and he dealt with it the best way he knew how. It sure is nice of you to think of it that way. Well, I do, you know. Now I got a problem collecting $5,000 from you. Uh-huh. I've got to deal with it the best way I know how. Well, you can't get blood out of a turnip, Jim. Yeah. Hey, babe, do me a favor and drop me across town. No. <laughs> Just totally fair. So Jim goes home by, by his own self, and he's met by a younger guy and I think is was wearing a corduroy suit. Is that? It's a, it's a weird-looking fabric to me. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, 
I looked this word up. I'm pretty sure I looked it up on our podcast before. Amore? Amore. Yeah, Amore. Amore. Effect. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on in, in this episode. Yep. Uh, but there's always a lot of that going on with, with Jimbo's clothing and, and lots of plaids. Uh, I've got it going on right now as we talk to each other <laughs> in my little preview image. I can mm-hmm, see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we have a good a good contrast here between your plaid and my tie-dye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little peek behind the curtain for our listeners. Yeah. We are very cool. We're a very we couple of cool dudes. Very fashionable dudes. This is Mr. Eastman's personal assistant, who has a very stilted manner in how he is asking Jim to come see yes. his boss. Jim busts him about it. Where did you learn to talk like that? It says Harvard Law School. And people understand you? Um, yeah. If Mr. Eastman wants to see him right away, he'll... You know, he'll follow the other guy's car, which I like is a classic gym, like insurance. Like, I'm not getting in a car with you. And and it's a thing he can demand of this particular person because this particular person, he might be able to overpower. Right. Uh, if that if it came down to it, but also just doesn't look like he's going to try and physically force Jim into anything. Half the time I'll follow you is re- the response is they pull a gun and they say, no, how about we take my car? Yeah, exactly. Right? And the other half the time he gets to just, you know, follow him in his car. Uh, Jim meets with this Mr. Eastman, who is a uh, a very, I was going to say genteel. That's not the right word. Um, I don't know. He's a warm, a warm older fellow. Yeah. Friendly, gregarious, perhaps. Uh, you may remember him as Larry Tate from uh, Bewitched, which is, uh-huh. I believe... Darren's boss. Um, I mean, I I was like this guy. This guy has definitely been on TV. Yeah, yep. It's Darren's boss. Well, you know, we start this off with with Eastman laying out the the situation with the three bidders, etc. Um, mm-hmm. He pours Jim a drink, which Jim seems to enjoy as he listens to all of this without contributing anything himself, which is a, a classic Jim move. Um, Jim's like, "What do you want with me when you've already hired Marcus O'Brien?" I like how Jim does not blow his spot and keeps up his his PI name, which is yeah uh, very nice of him. Good. Eastman says that he did not hire Mr. O'Brien, and in fact, he thinks that Mark is the one possibly pressuring the commissioner on the behalf of one of the other bidders. So he wants to find out what the situation is. He wants to hire Jim because I was told that for a detective, you were reasonably worthwhile. Yeah. Lots of shade cast on the uh, <laughs> private investigative industry in this episode. I know. It's just a shame that it can't be in front of Rocky so he can join in. Yeah. <laughs> um, he wants to hire Jim and has a $20,000 bonus on the line if he's if Eastman ends up being awarded the franchise. And so that information takes them from Mr. Rockford and Mr. Eastman to Jim and Marty. Um <laughs> That's such a great line. You don't mind if I call you by your first name. So why don't you just tell me why you sent for me, and then we'll decide whether we're going to become Jim and Marty. But yeah, so he wants Jim to find out who's pressuring the commissioner, and if necessary, get concrete evidence to take to the authorities. Yeah. Uh, Jim takes the job. Uh, On his way out, he would like his first day up front. Why don't you just bill me? Because I like to get it up front. (sighs) Oh, come on, Jim. I'm worth 50, 60 million dollars. Surely you're not concerned about my credit. Well, no, of course not. That's why I'm willing to take a check. <laughs> Another little beat on the on the general sub theme of the Rockford Files, which is that 
Jim has to care about the money because rich people will do whatever they can not right. to pay him. Like, yeah. the more money you have, the less likely it is that you'll actually pay Jim. Um, we have a short scene, which is just a press conference with the commissioner saying that he's made his decision and he'll be announcing it the next day, uh, which is to set up the drama of the next uh, act, I suppose, of the story. So we follow Marcus at night as he's strolling up to a nice house. He goes up a staircase and then rings a doorbell. He walks in and then there's a cut and we see him walk out quickly and close the door. <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure if that was supposed to be. Right. It doesn't. I wasn't sure if that was just a slightly misaligned cut and we're supposed to see. And it's supposed to look like he went in and came right back out. Or if that was a cut to indicate the time had passed. It doesn't right, matter. Right. Um, I think the implication is that he goes in and then he comes right back out. I think that's yeah. what we're supposed to, to get from that. Um, and then he walks down the staircase real quickly, and then we just see these arms reach out and grab him and pull him <laughs> over the railing. Oh, but uh, it is, in fact, our good friend Jim Rockford. Yeah. Uh, he'd like to know how the commissioner is. How is Hayes supposed to know that? Well, that's his house you're coming out of. Um, which is in my notes, I, in my, in parentheses, is he dead? Right. Um, <laughs> Jim would like an introduction, and he makes Hayes make time to, uh, to do it. So they go in, and sure enough, there is the body of the commissioner on the floor. Dun, dun, dun. Marcus says that he did not kill the commissioner. He found him this way, which is why he was running out of the apartment, which makes total sense. Um, why would anyone want to kill him? That slams the lid on the whole thing. No one's going to get the franchise. Jim wants Mark to come with him. Well, wait, uh, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but the thing is, you see, I, I don't want to hang out with you just now. <laughs> but Jim threatens uh, to call the cops and uh, have have Mark explain the whole thing to them. And so Hayes decides that, sure, he should go with Jim. There's uh, two good bits here where the first is when we see the body. Jim almost leans on the railing, almost puts his hands on the railing mm -hmm. and stops himself. <laughs> and it's just like this, like, oh, wait, that's right. This is a crime scene now. Yeah, don't get my prints anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the line. I think this is, I didn't write in my notes. You said, if I think it's Marcus, they were going to have a conversation. And Marcus is like, death can be very contagious. Yeah. Like we should, we should leave. Yeah. 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 It's extremely good. Um, so we go to them, uh, in a, in a bar somewhere, um, mm. where we kind of cut into Hayes filling out his transition into being a PI a little bit. Um, after he lost his parole officer job. He says he was making $100,000 a year on divorce cases yeah. until the courts changed the laws to not admit photographs. 100000 Like, I mean, maybe. Uh, we One thing we know is not to trust him about money on right, anything. Right. But, wow. Like, wow. I, and also, technically, he has an agency, right? right? Like, it's not. But still, wow. This is to, to explain that Jim needs to understand where he's coming from on why he got into this case. Because, yeah. because Eastman Hot offered him a $10,000 bonus or whatever. But then Jim's like, you don't work for Eastman. <laughs> sure. Okay. He was, he was actually working for the commissioner. Uh, the commissioner hired him because he had received threatening phone calls telling him that he was going to be told who to award the franchise to. Yeah. Right before he was going to do it so that he couldn't like go to the authorities or whatever. And so he hired Hayes 
and offered him a $10,000 bonus if he found out who the these threats were coming from. And Jim's like, how did you know he was good for that? <laughs> and again, this is, gets into the tradecraft here, which I which I think is great, where yeah. Marcus says, well, I knew he had it in his bank account. That's all, That was good enough for me. But Jim had checked into him, said that he wasn't in that income bracket. He only made $40,000 a year, and he owed lots of money. Yeah. Where was he going to get a 10000 cash from? Maybe he was taking bribes. And that was, or taking a bribe. And that's where that money was going to come from. Hayes thinks that, so the goons work for Corell. Corell's mobbed up. Maybe they hit the commissioner. Right. Uh, when they found out that Eastman was going to get the franchise or something like that. But how would they have found that out is the question. At this point in the story, uh, the case has me so thoroughly jumbled up. Then mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll just wait till Jim figures this out. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, because we have both the what is actually going on, and we also have the what is Marcus lying about. Right, yeah. Why is Marcus involved doesn't necessarily answer the question, what is actually going on here? And uh, there's a lot of, to, who do those two work for? Mm-hmm. Who killed the commissioner? You know, what's everyone's stake in it? It's, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that, that we just, yeah. Before they can talk out more of what's going on, uh, they're interrupted by one of Marcus Hayes' old parolees who recognized him in the bar and is a very Gandhi-ish guy, I would say. He is tall and bald and muscular. He served four extra years because because of Marcus. And Marcus tries to pretend like he doesn't know who's who who that is. And he must yeah. have, a, have the wrong guy. But uh, that does not save him from getting taken out to the alley and getting uh, another another punch before Jim can come in and save the day um, in the Firebird yet again. Right in in a setup that's very similar to to the two previous yes alleyway beatdowns that we've seen. It has this line from the opening montage where <laughs> Marcus claims to be a reverend now. Yeah. There's a couple things I love about that. First of all, I was waiting for the line uh, because it was in the opening montage. And there's some distinct possibility that he could actually be, to varying degrees, a reverend, right? <laughs> sure. So yeah. I was wondering what would come of that. Like, it, was this story going to dip into an area where, you know, something uh that had to do with that would come up um and then i'd forgotten that it happened and then when it's delivered it is the worst lie he's done yet because he's <laughs> he's been lying to this guy this whole time and now he's like no i'm just a very i'm a very angelic person right like like you're you're everything this guy knows about you says you're not a reverend right, right now right. <laughs> like that's the uh it, you're not leaning into anything he knows you're just right you're just throwing something out just 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 to hope, just with a prayer, if you will, uh, which is only answered by Jim and the Firebird. What, what took you so long? I had to go get my car. I like how uh, this guy this guy takes after Jim's car, like the yeah. T- T-2000 or the T-1000. Yeah, that's good. Um, in the car, Marcus continues complaining about how he was getting beat up while Jim kind of puts it together for us. Uh, so with Jim's theory is that the commissioner must have been taking a bribe from a, from one of the bidders. And now that Eastman hired Jim, <clears throat> I love this because he says, at some point, I'm going to get hauled downtown and I have to answer some questions. And I don't have the answers to give to Lieutenant Deal. Yeah. <laughs> That that was I wrote that down too. He's like, uh, I'm going to be in a room with Lieutenant Deal, right? 
and I'm not going to have anything to tell him, so I need to figure out what's going on. And it's nice because uh, Marcus probably knows who he's talking about. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. a. Uh, it's not just him mentioning any old cop name, right? Like it's not like him going, you know, Lieutenant Smith. I mean, anyone who's been watching the show at this point would know, yeah, you know, who Deal is specifically. I think, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good little moment. Um, so he needs to bait a trap to get the answers, and of course, the bait is going to be Marcus Hayes. Um, it is not up for discussion, but don't worry, Jim has his back. So the play here, they both crowd into a phone booth, which is a great bit of little physical comedy. Yeah. So we go through a sequence where they call Corral and then they call Eastman with the same story. It's also funny because Jim starts off playing total hardball and then Marcus takes the phone and rephrases everything in a more conciliatory tone. Yeah. Really fantastic. But he says that he has evidence to the effect that the person they are calling was bribing was bribing the commission. Carell found out about it, and that's why they killed him. Mm-hmm. But for $100,000, they can buy that evidence back. Yeah. Meet me at this street at this time. Um, so same story to Carell, then same story to Eastman. Eastman plays it more cool. Like, Carell's like, who is this? Right, what are you right. talking about? And Eastman's like, so you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> plays it much more cool. Marcus still doesn't like this, but Jim's like, "There'll be lots of cops there. I'm going to get lots and lots of cops. You'll be fine. You'll be safe." Yeah, you know, make the third call, and then we cut. So this third bidder, we hear his name, but like, I kind of like that. There's three bidders, but we really only care about two. And and in fact, one one is bribing, and the other, uh, I'm I've lost it now. So one of them has to be bribing. And another one might have been putting, like, making threats. Right, right. But not bribing. Yeah, but not bribing. So, yeah, anyways. <laughs> it could be that, you know, this is a real team and uh, they they left themselves open for that innocent third bidder. Right, right. <laughs> to be the real life person who owns it. But We cut to this, you know, this meeting spot and uh, Mark is just walking around waiting. Jim is in the Firebird also waiting. A car appears out of nowhere. Jim goes to turn on the Firebird, but it won't start. It's like flooded <laughs> or something. And a rare moment of mechanical failure to cause some drama. Um, and we get a pretty physical little bit here where Hayes runs over to like a drain pipe and like jumps up on top of a trash can or something yes. as the car tries to hit him and then jumps onto the hood of the car and then gets driven around and then rolls off the hood of the car and then runs up the steps and then that's that's where yeah. Jim is able to get the firebird going. And then we get the great scene where the car follows Marcus, then hits the two wheels and goes up on its side, you know, chases after him a little bit and then falls over on the top of the car. This is uh, exactly the sort of scene that would have been in the, uh, not the preview, but the opening credits montage for uh, the, the fake cop show cop. Oh, for... Um... <laughs> Free, freeze turkey yeah freeze turkey yeah uh falcon falcon yes so this is exactly the kind of shot we would see in the title sequence for falcon yes absolutely um and dun 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 it is mr eastman who is in the car <laughs> jim's reaction to this is the best it's so good this might be like if we ever done did another Malibu. I, I don't even know what the cat. Oh no, this would be Rockfordishness. Mm-hmm. His reaction here would definitely be in the running for me. What's wrong? Uh, hey, where are all the cops? I'm about ready to call them. You are about ready to call them? Yeah. 
You mean there were no cops? You mean I was standing there like a ten pin in a bowling alley and there were no cops? He was gonna give me a twenty thousand dollar bonus. But you promised cops. Well, I was really hoping that was gonna be Corel. I could have been killed, Jim. I could have used that twenty thousand dollars. So Jim is just upset that it's Eastman because that's where his $20,000 bonus is. Like, <laughs> everything else just kind of falls apart. He's like, no, oh, I didn't want it to be him. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> While Hayes is concerned, where are the cops? I'm about to call them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so good. So it turns out it was Eastman all along. Um, we'll go to our final scene of the episode. Uh, in Hayes' office where he's on the phone trying to talk the bank out of liquidating his company, but they just hung up, hang up on him. Jim is there. Why don't you change banks? <laughs> but it is too late for that. Marcus makes another call, which I love how, how the tone of this is absolutely like, you know, this is oh, yeah. situation number six. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah. He's got an exit plan and it's and everyone there knew about it and they were ready for it. Same as always, he says. Yeah. Uh, specifically take the the typewriter like the the, the tangible assets yeah grab the tangible assets we the, can, the we teletype go. and the typewriters yeah <laughs> he tells Jim not to take it so hard they got out of the case alive and Eastman is going to be convicted so they can be satisfied like so there's some satisfaction there at least all right so I guess in terms of the the, the mystery the the plot, whatever. Yes. <laughs> whatever has happened. So there's the three bidders. Eastman bribes the commissioner to award it to Eastman. Mm -hmm. The commissioner hires Marcus to get evidence. Yeah. As far as I can tell, Marcus is doing a legitimate job. Yes. Right. His methods of doing it. And when you look back on it, I think. Uh, our listeners mm -hmm. who are uh, who maybe are a little bit more perceptive on this might be able to correct us. But um, when you look back on it, it makes sense how he behaves because he isn't going to give up who has hired him. Right. Partly because uh, maybe there is an ethics thing there. Maybe he just doesn't do it. Uh, or it could be because he can't get the answers he needs if people know right, what right. he's looking for. So I guess the pieces that... that come together that seem to make sense to me are, I mean, it has to be that Eastman is bribing the commissioner, but the commissioner is also getting these threats. Yeah. Right. Those are, and those are two separate things. So he's going to, to award it to Eastman because of the bribe, but he's being threatened and he knows that's not Eastman. So therefore whoever's threatening him wants him to award it to one of the other guys, which will get him in trouble with Eastman because he's taking Eastman's bribe. So right. he hires Marcus to find out who's threatening him. He can't tell him that it's not Eastman because of the bribe. Right. So he may not have solved that mystery. <laughs> well, I think it's heavily implied that it's, it's Corel. It's, yeah. it's the other one we met, right? Yeah, exactly. The one who clearly has heavies. Who, who employs the goons, like all that stuff. Yeah. So then Eastman knows that Marcus is sniffing around, hires Jim because he he also wants whoever's threatening the commissioner to go down because that clears right. the way for him and his bribe to, to work out either way. Yeah. Uh, but then why does he kill the commissioner? So then I guess that's just the story that... I don't think it's Eastman that kills the commissioner. I think it's... But that's why Eastman came to the... Oh, right, right. So I have evidence that you killed, that you had a motive for killing the commissioner because you were bribing him. So yeah, so... I, I guess he is. So I guess Eastman thinks that the commissioner is not going to award it to him and that's why he kills him? 
I guess that's the quite like that's yeah maybe it's addressed and I just missed it because of how I was taking notes. But I guess that logic there, those words make sense in the in that sentence. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm not sure that I understand the motivation. Right, right. Um, but whatever, it gets it 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 drives up the stakes for the story, and that's what's yeah. important. Um, and he's gonna get prosecuted for it. <laughs> um, anyhow, we have a montage of staff packing up the office as yes. Jim and Marcus leave, which is very fun. Um, and then we get outside and there's one last little thing to, yeah. to deal with, which is that the leasing agent is getting the keys from the limo driver and is about to take the limo back. And so Jim does decide to help his buddy out and he takes Marcus's gun and they play this great little game. <laughs> This is this is interesting because it, this is uh, I mean it's illegal. Uh, he's impersonating a cop here, so he right. takes Marcus's gun and pretends to have arrested Marcus, and that they need the limo as evidence. This car was used in a robbery. The money is still missing. We're going to have to take it down to the police impound area, go through it, take the seats out, everything. I'm sorry. And he specifically says that, oh, you can you can come get it from the impound at 2.30 this afternoon. Like, he has a very specific, like, oh, you'll get it yeah. back. You just can't have it now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a fun little thing here where Marcus can't let, I don't know. It's hard to tell what exactly is happening with Marcus here, whether he can't let that tarnish his reputation or if he's just playing along with the con and realizes he has to object to what's happening. It's a bum rap. It's a frame-up. But it feels very like, here's someone who's been doing a lot of acting and playing at people, and this this time it feels like somewhat, like he's putting on his acting, I'm acting, you know, like uh, voice or whatever. So, but it's fun. It's definitely a fun little bit. They they managed to uh, run this line past the, the 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 leasing agent. They get the keys back from him, and the saxophone score plays as the limo rides away. And we get voiceover of Hayes musing about what to do next and how to bounce back. And we end with, "It's always been a problem. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been worried about my future." Hey Jim, hmm? can I borrow ten bucks? No. <laughs> End of episode. I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, it's a fun one. Just the the chemistry is just so yeah. great with the with the two of them. I guess again, kind of like what you were saying, how in a later season it probably would have gone been a little different. Like I feel like like the basketball stuff. Yeah, like that. That's a more like off kilter potential plot to go down. But this episode isn't really about that. This episode is about figuring right. out what Marcus's angle is, and then getting them both out of the trouble that Marcus has gotten them into. It is 100% a Rockford Files episode to have a commissioner making a decision and being leaned upon and then Mm -hmm. finally ending up dead because of it. Yeah. The fact that this commissioner is a basketball commissioner (laughs) (laughs) rather than like, uh, you know, building commissioner or, you know, whatever. But Mm -hmm. like, so it's kind of like, I really enjoy that. Like it's, uh, it has basketball, but like none of the glamour. (laughs) And, And also there's something about how like the original story could also be an interesting episode where if it's about like point shaving and, you yes, know, the, yeah. the players, like an ex-con player being like, you know, being being extorted by the mob you know, yeah. for, for a numbers racket to, to go or something like that is a perfectly cromulent Rockford Files premise. <laughs> so that's kind of thrown out as like what is going on. 
And it turns out that that's just a story and that's not what's going on at all. <laughs> so there is a bait. In, you said like, yeah, so there's a bit of a bait in the switch at the beginning where you kind of get that sense from seeing those guys talk about the players yeah. and then Gabby's original story. You're like, oh, this is what this episode's about. And then it's just not at all. Um, yeah. But I would also be interested in seeing that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Some really good lines in it, too. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. It was just filled with I, I like it's one of those ones where I'm like, I'm just transcribing what they're saying in my notes. I, I need to <laughs> mm-hmm. need to go a level deeper here. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes when I'm deciding what audio to, to drop in, it's uh, it's exactly what we note as we as we go. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like, oh, right. They also says something here. And I go back to the episode and I search. I'm like, yeah, I should put that in. Yeah. And I cannot tell you now exactly how much of that is going to happen because I do that in editing. However, this kind of episode (laughs) tends to end up having more drops that I edit in than we call out in our notes because I just get reminded of the good stuff. And then I, you know, I'm playing it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that should go in as well. There's a little peek behind the production curtain for uh, (laughs) for everyone. So many peeks behind so many curtains today. That's how we do. But yeah, uh, a satisfying meal of an episode. I feel feel nice and full of Rockfordishness yeah. after this one. <laughs> I need a Rockford bomb. What should I watch? Mm-hmm. Go for it. It's a good one. That that'll just lots of good interaction, enough action to keep you going forward. Yeah, brief, brief but very well staged action scenes. Yeah, and I feel like this one is a fun one too with uh, just another Polish wedding. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Gandhi's first appearance with just another Polish wedding. Where there's a where there's an abrupt change in tone while this into that is a continuous. Yeah, exactly. Definitely a continuous line. All right. Well, I agree with everything you said. As per no, usual. Good. Do you have any other thoughts on Foul on the first play? Which I will say made me, made me think of baseball. Yeah, me too. Because I feel like when I think about plays, I don't think of basketball. Obviously, you have plays in basketball. Yeah. But just that term made me think of baseball. But then I'm like, oh, yeah, no, there's there's, there's, there's fouls in basketball. <laughs> yeah. But yes, any additional thoughts on foul on the first play? No, I think we covered them. All right. Well, then I will go. Uh, I, I need to go work on my bid for an upcoming <laughs> expansion franchise uh, here, here in the Windy City. But uh, until next time, when we talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs> Bwah, 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 bwah